have. Today we continue in the book of Philippians. Let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Turn to chapter 2 as we continue in this journey learning how to live with joy no matter the circumstances. Let me ask you a question as we begin. Just think back over this last week, maybe over the last 24 hours. Has there been something in your life, and specifically a person in your life, that maybe has robbed you of joy? Someone who you thought, man, my day's going really well, and all of a sudden my joy quote just kind of went crashing because of this person that did something in my life, like kids that are maybe fighting in the home and having arguments and you're like I wanted a peaceful day and now the arguments are pursuing or the overbearing boss who just won't get off your back and you're trying to do the best you can and that that boss just keeps riding you or or maybe it's the nagging spouse I don't start throwing any elbows okay but maybe it's that spouse that just, just is, seems like they're nagging. It's like my joy. Or, or the inconsiderate neighbor who's not thinking about how to be a good neighbor and they're just thinking about themselves. Or, or maybe many of us would say, well, the drivers on the road who are driving kind of crazy. Or, or possibly it could be that social media friend who keeps posting negativity nonstop or keeps posting about politics, or keeps posting about COVID, or, or whatever it is. Because I've been hearing more and more lately, people are like, I just need to get off my social media. I'm tired of my social media because it just wears me out. It just makes me feel so negative. It's one of those situations where, where joy is being taken away, or joy is being robbed. You know, the Apostle Paul knew about people problems. He understood people challenges. He wrote a letter called Philippians, which we've been walking through, and, and was lit, written to the church in Philippi, and his letter, he deals with how to have people, how, how to handle people problems. Anybody in here ever have people problems? You guys ever have that? Remember, we need to be interactive because we have these masks on, so I need heads nodding, I need extra amens. Remember, we've been kind of training that because otherwise I look like I'm, I feel like I'm preaching a bunch of cardboard cutouts, and so we're not going to do that today, so make sure you're interacting with me. We all have people problems. I mean, yeah, right. You might today say, you know, it's been not too bad so far. You know, it's only, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning and, and so far I'm done. But chances are you'll go to lunch and it may be a waiter or waitress. Chances are it, it might be something in your family. Chances are it'll be tomorrow morning when you go to work. People problems. More specifically, though, Paul writes, how can I have joy in the middle of these people problems? Is that possible that I can have people who are driving me crazy at the same time? I can have joy. See, Paul's facing his own problems at Rome. And he also had problems back in Philippi where he started the church. And this concerned him the most. Epaphroditus brought Paul a gift when he was in prison in Rome. And so Epaphroditus comes from the church in Philippi, travels to Rome, brings him a gift of, of finances to encourage him. He brings words of encouragement, and he brings his concern to Paul about how the church back in Philippi is concerned about for him. But then also he brings some concerns about what he's seeing taking place in a church in Philippi. So Epaphroditus is kind of Paul's eyes, and he's saying, Paul, here's what I've been seeing in the church. And he tells them some news about how they were having people problems and how do you, what am I going to do about this? And so the church is being threatened by division and disunity 
And according to chapter 3, false teachers from outside were trying to bring in some false teaching in the church. And then internally, there's some disagreements between Euodia and Sycathy. I'm glad those names have not been passed on down the ages to, to name our children. They're hard enough to say just for a sermon for a moment or read in the text. Uh, we don't know the issue, but whatever it was, it was causing disunity among the believers. And some people were siding with Yodia, and some were siding with sympathy. And so there's this little quarrel starting to go. And Paul understood something that I believe we need to learn today. Paul understood that there's a difference between unity and uniformity. There's a big difference. True spiritual unity comes from within, where uniformity is a result of outside pressure. Once you start behaving this way, all right, just to keep everybody happy, you do this. No, true unity is because the Lord is changing my heart, then I'm changing my perspective, and I'm changing my, be- my, my attitude and my behavior and how I interact with others. This is why Paul opens chapter 2 appealing to the highest, I think, possible spiritual motives. Look at our text in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but to each of you to the interest of others." Paul says since the believers were in Christ, his words are written to encourage them to work towards unity, to work towards love, and not work towards division. In a gracious way, I think what Paul is trying to say is your disagreements reveal that there is a spiritual problem in your fellowship. It isn't going to be solved by rules or threats. It's going to be solved when your hearts are right with Christ and with each other. And so Paul sets out a high calling to make sure that they are living in Christ, walking in Christ, listening to the teachings of Christ and not other kinds of teachings, and wants people's hearts to be guided about their relationship in Christ because Paul wanted them to see that the basic cause was selfishness and the cause of selfishness is pride. Do you imagine if I looked at you in the eye and said, you know what your problem is? You're full of pride and selfishness. You would not be very happy with the preacher. We, ha- we have that problem, don't we, though? <laughs> yeah, and, and we would probably say, um, this is not going so well. But that's what Paul's saying to the church. He's like, listen, the problem is, is there's a bunch of selfishness that's leading to pride or pride that's leading to selfishness. And there can be no joy in the life of the Christian who puts himself or herself above others. Y- you may feel good for a while, but, but inside, that is not filling you with joy. In chapter 1, we discovered the secret to joy, in spite of our circumstance, is the single mind. The single mind is based in Philippians 1.21. It says, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. The single mind is my life is all about Christ. My life is I live for Christ. If I'm here on earth, I live for Christ. If I die, I gain being with Christ. That's the single mindset that on this earth, that's my focus, that's my goal. In chapter 2, what I want us to see is that the secret to joy in spite of people is a submissive mind. 
in spite of people, that I'm going to have a submissive mind. The key verse we're going to look at is this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. That swims against the culture today. Value others above myself. Set myself aside. Put, put me on the back burner, so to speak. I mean, in chapter 1, it's all about Christ being first. In chapter 2, it's all about others being second. Does that sound familiar? Jesus has asked the greatest commandment. He said, what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all your soul and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And here Paul says in chapter 1, it's all about Christ. And in chapter 2, it's all about putting other people second. Why is that? Because Paul is inspired by God to put these words together. And God has a continual theme throughout Scripture that He's guiding us and now showing us how do you live this out. Paul, the soul winner in chapter 1, becomes now Paul the servant in chapter 2. In chapter 1, let's win people to Christ. In chapter 2, let's serve others. It's important that we understand what the Bible means by humility. Humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you have lost it. You start to think about it for a minute. It's like... I'm being humble, but I'm also letting it go. Humility. The true humble person knows himself and accepts himself. Romans 12 describes the humble person well. It says in verse 3 of chapter 12, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And so humility is not thinking so highly of yourself, but having that that sober judgment, like understanding that really anything I do or anything I do of success, that's because of what God has done in me. The humble person yields himself to Christ to be a servant, to use what they are and what they have for the glory of God and for the good of others. The humble person knows I'm put here to serve God. I'm put here to love people. That's when you walk in humility. Others is the key to this chapter. Chapter 2, if you get anything out of it, it's all about how do I love others. The believer's eyes are turned away from themselves and focused on the need of others. The submissive mind does not mean, though, that the believer is at the beck and call of everybody else or that they are the religious doormat for everybody else to use. It doesn't mean I just let people walk over me. Some people try to purchase friends uh, and maintain church unity by giving in to everybody else's whims and wishes. Well, they want this, they want this, they need this, they need that. I'm going to just do all that and try to make everybody happy. That's not what Paul's suggesting. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So that's, that's the submissive mind. I'm here to preach Jesus. I'm here to share Jesus. I'm here to help people know Jesus. And so I'll practice humility because I want people to know Jesus. If we have a single mind of Philippians 1, then we'll have no problem with the submissive mind of Philippians 2 where I serve others. Paul gave us four examples of the submissive mind talks about Jesus Christ first, and then he talks about himself, and then he talks about a Timothy, and he also talks about Epaphroditus, and Paul begins with the greatest example, Jesus Christ. Paul illustrates through Jesus' life four character traits of the person with a submissive mind. I want to look at those today. What are these four character traits that we see in Jesus as Jesus is our model to look to? I think Paul says, look, you've got to put others first, not yourself. Look at verse 5 and 6. In your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus is God. They are one, and they are equal, but he did not consider that equality with God something to be selfishly held on to or to take advantage of. Jesus did not think of himself. He thought of others. That's the mind of Christ. It's an attitude that says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I I must use them for others. And to do this, I'll gladly lay them aside, put them aside to pay whatever price is necessary. Even though I am God, I'm equal to God, I'll set all that aside. There was a reporter uh, who was interviewing a successful job counselor some years ago who had placed hundreds of workers in vocations who were very happy with their jobs. When asked the secret to his success, the the man replied, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities, give him privileges. Most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough, but it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A leader will use his privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser man will use his privileges to promote himself. Jesus had the same privileges as God. But he didn't promote himself. He used it for others. He used it for your sake and my sake. He used his privileges for the sake of the person who doesn't know him. He used his privileges to rescue us. That's the attitude of putting others first, not ourselves. But Jesus also served people. See, thinking of others in an abstract sense is only uh, insufficient, I would say at the least. Uh, we, we must be practical. We must be, be action-driven. And Jesus demonstrates that action. Look at verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. See, Jesus thought of others, and then he becomes the servant. And Paul, Paul traced these steps of humiliation in Christ. He emptied himself, laying aside the independent use of his own attributes as God. So he, he lets go of all his, his God characters. Then he permanently became a human and a sinless body. You stop and just stop with those two, and that's remarkable. But then, then he used his body as a servant, and he took that body to the cross, and he willingly died. That's the attitude of a servant. That's someone who says, I'm going to step down out of heaven. That means I'm going to let go of all my privileges and, and everything that I own and everything that I have to, to care about others. What grace! What, what a demonstration of grace that, that he came from heaven to earth and he from glory to shame and from a master to a servant and from life to death and even death on a cross. What a demonstration of servanthood. And thank you, Nick. I got one person with me. And when Christ was born at Bethlehem, he entered into a permanent humanity from which there could be no escape. I mean, something about it. he willingly humbled himself that he might lift us up. He, he was not pretending. This was a real deal. This was the true expression of the innermost nature. He was the God man, he was deity and humanity united in one, and he came as a servant. I mean, just stop and pause on that thought for a moment. Have you noticed as you read the four Gospels, as you read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, that it is Jesus who serves others and not others who serve Jesus? I mean, just stop and think about what you know about the life of Christ. He's at the beck and call of people, fishermen and harlots 
and tax collectors and the sick and the sorrowing. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then you go to the situation in the upper room with his disciples who refused to minister. And Jesus got up and lay aside his garments and put on that servant towel and washed their feet. He took that place of the slave. I mean, we stop and just start pondering the life of Christ. That's what Paul is doing here in Philippians chapter 2. He's like, look at the life of Christ and look what Jesus has done for you. This was the submissive mind in action. And no wonder Jesus experienced joy. He was a man full of joy. So he puts other first. He serves him and then notice the sacrifices. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Death. I would say death is quite the sacrifice. See, many people are willing to serve others if it doesn't cost them anything. Well, I don't mind doing this, but then when it starts to have sacrifice, if there's a price to pay, all of a sudden, what? I might lose some interest. You mean it's going to cost me some money? It's going to cost me some time? It's going to cost me uh, some frustration? Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It It wasn't the death of a martyr. It was the death of a Savior, willing to lay down his life. He willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. The old preacher, Dr. J.H. Jowett, said, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. You think about that for a moment. If it costs you nothing, it's not going to accomplish nothing. So what could it be costing us? It could cost time. could cost money. could cost maybe your, your living style that, that you desire. It could cost right now, hey, I'm going to blow up the idea that Right now, I shouldn't come to church and gather in person. It could cost sacrificing some health. It could cost that. The person with the submissive mind does not avoid sacrifice. I think about us uh, going down to the Odyssey Center. We've had a chance to be down there, and and we're we're in a room, and many people don't want to wear a mask. And you go, do I go down here? They don't have a mask on, and we're not six-foot distancing, but we've been invited to share Jesus, and the team has been going every single day down there, no, they're risking some, some health, possibly. A sacrifice to share the name of Christ. See, the person with a submissive mind doesn't avoid sacrifice. The person with a submissive mind says, okay, it's going to take some sacrifice in order to do this, and maybe there's some risk. They, they live for the glory of God and the good of others. If paying a price will honor Christ and help, help others, then they say, I'm willing to do it. The, the people who are willing right now to go back and serve in the nursery and the preschool and the elementary kids, that's some sacrifice because you know what? When you're back there with kids, it's about impossible to keep six-foot distance and you can't keep masking all the kids. And who knows if one of those children are carrying something and our workers are back there and go, but I'm going to love these little children because they need to know Jesus. That's the cost of sacrifice. That was Paul's attitude. And that was Timothy's attitude. And that was Epaphroditus' attitude. Sacrifice and service, they go together because if service is to be true to Christian ministry, that's what it takes. The test of the submissive mind is is not just how much we are willing to take in terms of suffering, but also are we willing to give in terms of sacrifice. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. That the more we give, the more we receive, and the more we sacrifice, the more God blesses. I've never ran anybody who says, man, I've been sacrificing God and God hasn't taken care of me or God hasn't blessed me. This is why the submissive mind leads to joy because it's a mind that's more like Christ. This means sharing his joy, we also share in his sufferings. 
See, when love is the motive, if you look at verse 1, if any comfort from his love, so, so love is the motive. Paul draws right back any comfort from his love, looking at the love of Christ, any comfort from that. If love's the motive, then sacrifice is never measured or never mentioned. I'm always leery when I'm around believers in Christ, and they're like, oh, it's going to take an awful lot of sacrifice for me to do that. Brian, do you know what time I'm putting into this and what I'm sacrificing to make this happen? Do you know how much money that cost me? I'm leery of that because I'm wondering what is really the mention or the, the attitude behind that. But people who are willing to give of time and money and sacrifice, and they don't even mention it because their mind is, I'm serving Christ. The person who constantly talks about their sacrifice does not have that submissive mind. They're doing it, but they haven't submitted to the love of Christ. Is it costing you anything to be a Christian is a good question for us to consider. Is it costing us anything to be a Christian? Or am I just a Christian name? Or have I just accepted the blood of Jesus? But it's really not costing me anything. See, Jesus put others first. He served them. He made sacrifice. Why did He do that? I think He had one goal in mind. To glorify God the Father. The greatest goal that we have or should have is to glorify God with our lives. And Paul warns in verse 3 against vain glory. The kind of rivalry that pits Christian against Christian or, or ministry against ministry. He says it's not of God and it's not satisfying. It's vain and it's empty. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord's exaltation began with His resurrection. When men buried the body of Jesus, that was the last thing any human hands did to Him. And from that point on, it was God then who worked. Men had done their worst to the Savior, but God then exalts Him and honors Him. Men gave Him names of ridicule. Men gave Him names of slander. But the Father gave Him a glorious name. And just in His humiliation, He was given the name Jesus. So in His exaltation, He's given the name Lord. Jesus, the man who is on earth, the Lord who is the Savior of the world. He arose from the dead and then He returns to victory to heaven, ascending to the Father's throne. Paul's holding up Jesus in chapter 2 here and saying, stop, church, and look at his life. Look at what he has done for us. Look at his model. That's our example to father, f follow. His exaltation include the sovereignty, authority over all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that all will bow to him. The idea of those under the earth refer to the lost. And since God's family is either in heaven or on earth, one day it says all will bow. It doesn't say some will bow. One day all will bow before him. All will confess that he is Lord. It is possible for people to bow and confess today and receive the gift of salvation. And this is when we have to do that bowing if we want to receive the gift of salvation. We have to do that while we're here on earth, while we have that opportunity. To bow before Him now means salvation, but to bow before Him at the judgment means condemnation. I mean, Paul wants us to hear that loud and clear at church. 
And that's what we have to be able to share that message with friends and family. Listen, now bowing, now recognizing Jesus as Lord, now recognizing the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus means salvation. If it's later, it means condemnation. It means an eternal separation away from God. The whole purpose of Christ's humiliation and exaltation is to glorify God the Father. And as Jesus faces the cross, the glory of God the Father was in His mind. Because he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify the Father. In his death, he said, I want to glorify you. In fact, he's given his glory to us, according to John 17, because one day we shall share it with him in heaven. The work of salvation is much greater and grander than simply the salvation of a lost soul. And that is great. Our salvation has its ultimate purpose and glory in God. Our salvation points to a God who loves, a God who cares, a God who sacrifices, and a God who came. The person with the submissive mind, as he lives for others, must expect sacrifice and service. But in the end, it leads to glory of God. So when you're, when you're serving Christ and you're going through the hard moments, say, why is it so difficult? Why is it so challenging? Keep a mindset that this is glorify God. That brings joy. The joy of the submissive mind comes not only from helping others and, and sharing in fellowship of Christ's sufferings, but primarily from the knowledge that we are glorifying God, that God is pleased, that God is honored. We are letting our light shine through our good works, and this glorifies the Father. He's excited. We may not see the glory today. We may not even sense or feel the glory today, but we shall see it when Jesus comes and His rewards his rewards are faithful, and He will reward the faithful servants in Jesus. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus Paul points to us. We're going to sing a song called, What a Beautiful Name. And, and I want to have you think about this with me. We lift up the name of Jesus. We, we ended our first set of worship just lifting up the name of Jesus, and we're going to close just lifting up Jesus. Because that's our example to follow. That's who has given his life. A couple of people from our prayer team are going to come up here as we sing. And maybe today you're here and you say, I need someone to pray with me. Or, or I want to talk about my walk in Jesus, my salvation in Jesus. We will love to begin that conversation. But as we sing, I want to invite you. You need prayer. You want to give your life to Christ. You want to talk about what that means, give your life to Christ. What does baptism mean? Any of those kind of things. We, we want you to make those decisions of bowing your knee today or repenting today, making that U-turn today. And so our prayer team will be up here up front and available for you to, to just help and minister to you and, and share with you. And then we're going to close just singing about the beautiful name of Jesus. Father God, we thank you.